Today's reading come from, comes from Job 42, verses 1 to 17. That can be found on page 534 of the Bibles in front of you. Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is that that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, my ears had heard of you but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer, and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayers. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters, and everyone who had known him before, came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each gave, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. Am I, can you guys hear me? Up the back, can you hear me? I was going to do the whole down the front to the... Yeah, no, fine, whatever. Okay. It's good to be together, it really is, and uh, let me add my welcome to Emily's welcome. Super nice to be in church this morning. Uh, A beautiful day outside and really important stuff to be thinking about inside. So I'm going to pray as we get underway, and then we will get underway. Uh, And by the way, um, while I'm praying, if you want to get your Bibles open at around page 534, be a good thing to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful, epic, extraordinary, unusual dramatic evocative book of Job that we've been enjoying and as we uh, finish it up today Lord I pray that you'd continue to speak into our lives the same words that you've spoken to Job's life uh, and that we might be similarly moved towards faith and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen. Well as I said uh, as I just prayed really we're in the the final of our four weeks in the book of Job and today we're going to look at the question of what Job says about faith. Uh, And, you know, the whole book is kind of about that. But I wonder if you find it difficult to have faith. Probably all do from time to time. And if so, why is that? 
Is it because you can't see God? It's difficult to have faith in something you can't see, isn't it? Mind you, if you could see it, it wouldn't really be faith, would it? Uh, Sometimes we find it difficult to trust that God even exists, that he's there at all, even though there's enough evidence for that. But maybe it's more that we just find it hard to trust what he's doing in the ins and outs of our lives, in the day-to-day operation in the world. Maybe that's it. I've never um, had to engage the services of a builder, um, but as I understand it, I've never heard any family who's engaged the services of builders who've had a completely smooth sale through the building or renovation process. Now, some of you are builders, and so for the builders among us, I just want to say, I'm sure it's not always your fault, okay? I'm sure most of the time it's the client's fault, isn't it? You know, like they, they change their mind. The thing which looked good on the plans doesn't really work in real life. Um, So they want it changed. I'm sure often it's client-related, but most of the time, I'm not talking to the builders. I'm talking, I'm hearing from the sides of the kind of clients, the homeowners, the families. And uh, they seem to find it difficult to trust their builders. And I think that problem is exacerbated once the majority of the building work is done and there's just those final few kind of touch-up jobs or kind of small little things that need to be done for the whole thing, whole project to be completed. Now just imagine if you've ever been in that situation You're able to sit down with the builders face-to-face every morning to talk through the work that was going to happen, to get all the answers to to the questions of when and how and what and how much. Well, that would be a different experience, wouldn't it? You'd think you'd be able to trust your guys if you could sit down with them uh, every morning face-to-face and talk through things with them. I mean, it's not at all that you don't believe the builders exist, right? You, You know they exist. But you do think a personal appearance or maybe like a string of personal appearances would help you to have faith in what they're actually doing. Now, it strikes me that that's one of those things that's just difficult about life with God. It's difficult to trust all that he's doing when we don't get to see him face to face, often and anon. Over the past few weeks in this uh, extraordinary book of Job, which you can tell I I love, uh, we've seen Job suffer greatly at the hands of Satan, although suffer innocently and also suffering within the control of God. He has protested his innocence. He's demanded an audience with God, despite the kind of rebuke of his friends in those labored rounds of conversations that last the whole 35 chapters. And as he struggles to understand his innocent suffering, he really battles to maintain his faith in God. Now, that is the the question that we're looking at today. What does Job, the book, say about faith? That's the question for today. And I think the first thing that the book of Job says about faith is that faith trusts in the underlying goodness and justice of God. In other words, faith believes that whatever happens, whatever it is, God is acting according to his own perfect standards of goodness and justice. Now, I think it is uh, absolutely smack on dead true that our world doesn't believe that anyone is working according to any standards of goodness and justice. When things go wrong, even when things go right, we're suspicious, aren't we? Don't trust our politicians. Don't trust governments. Don't trust the church. Uh, Not just because of that horrendous torrent of child abuse that has come to light in recent years. We just wonder if the church is lying about the truth. Because everyone seems to be lying about the truth. You know, it's July, so that means Tour de France is on. And overnight, as I understand it, the leader of the Tour de France had a cup of urine thrown in his face as he was riding along. And some fans on the roadside yelled out, Dopa, Dopa, Dopa. 
you don't even have to win kind of spectacularly to be under suspicion these days. You just have to win. And it does seem to me that we've uh, almost become addicted to conspiracy and conspiracy theories, don't you reckon? Kind of enjoy them. We just enjoy naturally turning to cynicism and sarcasm and suspicion. We love to believe the government, and especially the CIA. I don't know why, but it's always the CIA. Or someone like them is trying to pull the wool over our eyes to come up with an alternative explanation. And uh, perhaps the most famous conspiracy theory of all time surrounds the moon landing by the United States in 1969. Now, some people uh, have suggested that uh, it never actually happened. That it was all filmed in a NASA film studio. They will say the TV footage is hopeless. Uh, you know, the world kind of tuned in to watch what looked like two blurry ghosts sort of float around and throw rocks and dust at each other. And yet the still photo is like stunning, isn't it? Perfectly exposed, sharply focused. The shadows look like they were created from multiple light sources. How can that be when there's only one source of light on the moon? That's called the sun. How come the American flag is always brightly lit, even when everything else is in shadow? How come we can see the shadow of the flag and the landing vehicle, but not the shadow of the astronaut? Why is the flag fluttering at all? if there's no air or wind on the moon. Where are the stars? It kind of makes you question, doesn't it? Love a good conspiracy theory because we just don't have an underlying trust in any government's honesty or justice. But in extraordinary contrast, Job shows us that faith does have an underlying trust in God's goodness and God's justice, even when things aren't pretty at surface level. So you, you might remember... Um, from previous weeks that after Job is just struck with the loss of his wealth and his family in chapter 1 he responds with those magnificent words the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord or you might remember after Satan afflicted him with those painful sores all over his body in chapter 2 he responds with these words shall we accept good from God and not trouble You might remember that the narrator tells us twice at the end of both of those chapters, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. You see, faith can attest to the underlying goodness and justice of God, even when things aren't going well at surface level. And that Job maintains his faith and trust in the goodness and justice of God is clear from the fact that he just just persists. He persists in arguing his case. Yes, he persists in defending his own integrity and challenging his friends with their neat and basic and kind of wrong theology. For 35 chapters, the dialogue goes back and forth because he persists in belief and in seeking God and in pursuing him. And the New Testament in the book of James chapter 5 verse 11 picks up on Job's persistence and urges us to imitate it. It says, you've heard of Job's perseverance. You've seen what the Lord finally brought about. Great persistence. But let me tell you, some of what he says in the midst of his great anguish shows, I think, an almost unbelievable belief that God's goodness and justice would bring him face to face with God at some point in the future. In what could be the most uh, significant pointer to life beyond the grave, you can find anywhere in your Old Testament. This is what Job says in chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him. 
with my own eyes. I am not another. And how my heart yearns within me. Man, they are spine-tingling words. Even amongst his tears, he can say he's got a redeemer. He's got a defender. So that he will see God with his very own eyes. He longs for that day of seeing God face to face. He's got an underlying faith in the goodness and justice of God. He has a redeemer. He will see God. Therefore, he does have hope. That's the first thing. Second thing the uh, book of Job teaches us about faith is that it's actually better to know God than to know all the answers. In, In other words, faith is not based upon us knowing all the answers to life's difficult questions. It's based upon knowing the one, the only, living and true God who does know all the answers. And you know, folks, this could... This could be the main message of the whole book. I mean, the presenting issue is innocent suffering. Bad things happening to a good guy. But the main message is how to handle that innocent suffering. And we're left with a choice. Is it better to know the answers? Or is it better to know God? And really that's the the faith journey that Job takes throughout the conversations with his friends. You know, they say, you suffer because you sinned. He says, no, I'm innocent. And in light of the accusations, he'll say things like this in chapter 10, I loathe my very life, therefore I'll give free reign to my complaint. I will say to God, don't condemn me. Tell me what charges you have against me. Or in chapter 13, he says, summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply. (laughs) You know, in other words, God, either way, I'm flexible, you know. How many wrongs or sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Uh, Later in chapter 23, he says these words. If only I could go to God's dwelling, there I would state my case. Um, I'd state it before him. I'd fill my mouth with arguments. And I'd find out what he would answer me. There an upright man could present his case before him. And I would be delivered forever from my judge. I don't know if you kind of pick up on the vibe that Job is going for in all those kind of references, but what he's really after is his day in court with God. He um, pictures himself like a man on trial defending himself, uh, pictures himself like a lawyer or a defense attorney perhaps, wanting to cross-examine God, wanting to put God in the dock. Now in some ways uh, we don't think really highly of lawyers, do we? You just hear any kind of lawyer jokes and it becomes clear, like... um, What's the difference between a mosquito and a lawyer? You know, one is a blood-sucking parasite and uh, the other is an insect. So the joke goes. It's not really fair, but it's still kind of funny. I was having uh, dinner last night with a friend who's a lawyer. And he was trying to, he was, I didn't tell him these jokes. I wish I had of now. Uh, he, um, he was trying to convince me like, on two separate independent occasions that lawyers really didn't get paid much at all. I just thought, oh, you're talking to the wrong guy, mate. <laughs> like, I'm not complaining, but really, you're talking to the wrong guy. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we might pretend like um, we don't think much of lawyers, but it remains a prestigious profession, doesn't it? And I think that's not just because it can be lucrative, but actually because it's just innately connected to justice, isn't it? And we want justice in our society, and we want justice in our lives, and we feel the tension of the injustice in Job's life. We know he's innocent. We know he's suffering, 
We want to know when he will get justice. Now that's the basic question that the friends set up in those rounds of conversations. Why does God allow this innocent man to suffer? I mean, Job's certain that he's innocent. And when Job gets, if Job gets his day in court, how will God answer that question of Job's innocent suffering? I'm just going to head up here to uh, the dock. Maybe it's the dock, who knows. And uh, after those rounds and rounds of conversations with the friends, God breaks his silence. But he doesn't answer Job's question funnily enough. He doesn't tell us why this innocent man is suffering. In fact, he turns the tables on Job, and it's not so much that he's answering Job out of a dock. He's answering Job out of a storm. Let's pick it up in chapter 38, verse 1. It'll just be a page or two earlier. 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, Who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid the cornerstone? Job, who shut up the sea behind closed doors? doors when it burst forth from the womb when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness when I fixed limits for it and set the doors and bars in place and said this far you may come and no farther here is where your proud waves halt Job you ever given orders to the morning you ever shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges? Job, where is the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? You loosen Orion's belt? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Seems a bit unfair, doesn't it, to be Job? (laughs) You've kind of been confident of your own integrity and righteousness and you just want to know why you've suffered, though you're innocent. And then God just speaks blusteringly out of a storm, questions Job exhaustively. I, Job, created the universe. I laid out its foundations. I measured it. I built it. I shut up the seas and limited them. I continue to sustain the world. Job, it is me, man, who brings forth the morning every morning, brings forth the darkness from its home each night. It's me who controls the movement of the stars. Not you, Job. Not you, but me. And look, you might, as a 21st century person, be sitting there thinking, come on, science, right? Science does it all. Of course, science does it all, man. No one's arguing that point. It's not like God and science are enemies on opposite teams. It's just that the question's not chemical. And the question's not physical. The question's not even philosophical. The question is personal. Who stands behind the order 
the wonder, the majesty of the created world. You really think it's random chances, random occurrences? Don't be silly. It's God. And not only does he control the basic elements of the world, you know, the the earth, sea, sun, stars, but he goes on in those four chapters to show how he made and provides for the untamable animals of the wild, the wild donkey and the wild ox and the ostrich like we saw last week, the wild horse and the eagle and all that. And finally, his barrage of questions shows that he controls behemoth and leviathan, two kind of mythological beasts, mythical beasts that resemble the hippo and the crocodile. I mean, the two most feared animals on land and water back then and pretty much still today. But they also represent cosmic forces of like chaos and evil and death and Satan. And that's something that science has never even claimed for itself, to control moral forces like chaos and evil and Satan. So you brace yourself like a man, Job, says God. I shall question you, and you will answer me. In those last four chapters there, 38 to 41, God breaks his silence, and man, it's breathtaking. And yet he doesn't answer Job's question. Did you notice that? He doesn't do it. (laughs) Kind of cheeky in a way. Looks like a real uh, onslaught from God, and we're surprised that Job survives at all. But if you think it sounds like a relentless merciless attack from God, you would be wrong. It's actually just an invitation to Job. Keep trusting God. Keep walking with God. To maintain faith in God, even when you don't have all the answers, maybe especially when you don't have all the answers. You know, friends, if you didn't have the wisdom to create the universe, however it happened, right, however long it happened, you won't understand everything. Well, that's okay. Because in the life of Jesus, you can see God who does understand everything. You don't have the power to bring forth the sun each morning or the stars each night. You won't know all the mysteries of the cosmos. That's okay. Because through the death of Jesus, you can know God. And he knows everything. If you can't tame the wild animals, let alone provide for them, you won't understand everything about how God works. But that's okay, because in the resurrection of Jesus, you can know him enough to know him truly and to know him forever, because death will not overcome us. And if you cannot control the forces of chaos and evil and Satan and death, you don't know all the answers. And it doesn't matter, because you can know God who does know all the answers. Paul uh, Featherstone, a fellow who, um, paramedic, who was in charge of getting those two miners who were trapped underground in Beaconsfield, Tasmania in 2006 out alive. Picture of them there. And when he was interviewed, he, would, he said that at times the, the two fellows would get extremely frustrated at the long time they had to wait. I mean, it was almost two weeks He said that was only because they didn't understand, they didn't know what was going on above them, the delicate operation being directed at the surface. And gee, I think that's like Job. He's just frustrated because God seems so long in bringing justice, but it's only because he doesn't realize what's going on above him, 
very delicate operation as God oversees an entire cosmos, including physical and spiritual and moral forces. And when he gets a glimpse of that from those four chapters, well, he responds in chapter 42, like Justin read to us. Have it open there in front of you, chapter 42, verse 1. I know you can do all things, says Job. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, he realizes that relationship with God is what matters. Not knowing all the answers, I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. But now I've seen you. Seen you with my own eyes. What I hoped for way back in chapter 19, that I will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, has happened. And you know what? It's enough, he says. I had heard of you, but now I have seen you. And so Job repents, uh, not meaning that you know, he confesses some non-existent sin like his friends have mistakenly been urging him to do for 35 chapters. I mean, that would destroy the whole point of the book. It just means that he's changed his mind in view of this extraordinary change of perspective and outlook. He, he, changes, he chooses an alternative course of action. I don't want my day in court. How foolish is that when I can have my day with God or my year or my everlasting peace with him. I've seen God, says Job. He's appeared to me. I have friendship with him, and that is enough. Now, as we finish, the question is, will that be enough for us? You're going to need humility to accept that better than knowing all the answers is to know the God who does know all the answers. We're going to need humility to do that. It does concern me when I hear people say things like, well, I just disagree with verse 14 or whatever verse it is. I mean, if you're just saying you're struggling to understand it, okay. Or even I'm battling to obey it, fair enough. It's not our place to disagree with the word of God though, is it? Even though it's tempting when we don't have all the answers at a point in time. And every now and again I hear uh, people say things like, I'm going to have a word with God about that when I get to heaven. (laughs) And I'm like, really? How long do you reckon that conversation's going to last? It seems to me that Job wanted to have a word with God and he couldn't even utter a syllable. <laughs> of course, I would never um, be so bold and foolish to say that I disagree with the word of God, but my goodness, sometimes I look at my life and um, I may not verbalize my disagreement, but my, disembody, my disobedience embodies it. Maybe that's you as well. When we can't understand what God is doing, when we don't have all the answers, when there's mystery and pain and maybe worst of all, silence, and when clarity just eludes us, we maintain our trust in God and our obedience to his word because we know that he knows what he's doing. And that's what Job found out about faith. It's not about having all the answers. It's about a personal relationship with the God who does have all the answers. And God probably won't speak to you out of a storm And I think, man, maybe we should be relieved by that. 
He may not sit down with you at the start of every day, although let me say that in the person of Jesus, he did come down from the whirlwind, from the storm, and he walked at ground level among us, breathing the same air that we breathe, living the life that we couldn't live before he died the death that we deserve. And to this very day, to this very day, it's possible to have a relationship with God through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, one that will become only more tangible in the life to come when we will see his face. It's the very last page of the Bible promises. So friends, it's okay to search for all the answers. And I believe it's okay to cry out to God in despair, frustration or sensing hopelessness. And in some ways, what you do with all this may not change an individual specific behavior, but I hope it does change the demeanor of our hearts today in preparation for the day of trouble that is coming. Because on that day, and all the days between now and then, give me a relationship with the living God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the one who knows it all, our redeemer who lives. Because of all that Jesus has done, friendship with God is what's on offer. And at the end of his long journey, that's where Job arrives, friendship with God. It's enough for him. The question is, is it enough for us? And I'm going to pray that it would be. Why don't you join with me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for, uh, once again, this extraordinary, epic, adventurous, provocative, evocative book of Job. Uh, Thank you for um, just the privilege it is to have kind of gone along that little journey of faith with him, or at least to to seen it, to be able to have seen it. And uh, Lord, we are faced with a choice of either wanting to know all the answers and being dissatisfied that we don't, or knowing you. And at the end of Job's long journey, he realizes better than knowing the answers is knowing you. And we want to be like him. So move our hearts to be like him this day, in preparation for the day of trouble that's coming. Well, in preparation for every day. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.